Welcome to the I Am Somebody podcast. This is a collaborative project between Focus Recovering Wellness Community, NAMI Hancock County, LGBTQ Plus Spectrum of Finley, and other volunteers. In this podcast, we hear recovery stories from people who suffer from mental health conditions, substance use, and trauma. We also hear from service providers, family members, and other community supporters of recovery. The subject matter of this podcast may be difficult for some listeners. The views and opinions expressed on the I and Somebody podcast are those of individuals being recorded and do not necessarily reflect the official policies or positions of the partnering agencies. Stick around after the podcast for information on local and national resources for mental health, substance use, and trauma services. I am somebody. 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 Hi, this is Stacy with the I Am Somebody podcast. Today I have a special co-host with me, our very own Ashley. How are you doing today, Ashley? Hi, Stacy. I'm doing very well. I'm very excited to be on my first podcast. I'm a longtime listener and supporter of I Am Somebody podcast and just uh, really happy to be here today. That's awesome. I'm so glad to hear that. Um, we also have a very special guest on here today, um, Christina. She is actually our mom's house live-in monitor, so I'm really excited to hear what she has to say. How are you doing today, Christina? Hi, Stacy. I'm doing great. I'm really glad to be here with you. Awesome. So without further ado, um, if you want, just start wherever you would like, and you know we'll chime in as we have questions or anything like that. Oh, okay. I guess where to start? would be to mention the fact that um, I have four and a half years of sobriety. Woo! Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) That is awesome. I think working as peer support has a big impact on that. I now work with uh, mothers who were homeless and in recovery, uh, helping them have healthy babies. So... That's awesome. That That's something that I can definitely relate to because you know with my story that I went to treatment pregnant, so I have a lot of compassion for that. Um, I feel in a way, too, that um, not that I like so much am those babies, but I started out in a similar situation with a uh, alcoholic, drug-addicted mother mm-hmm. myself. So it sounds like you kind of like that's your calling. In a lot of ways, yes. Um, I'll be honest, when I first started there, I was, you know, I was feeling that overwhelm of starting a new job. But now that I've been over there for about three months, I am, like, really feeling it now. I'm feeling a connection to the women I'm working with, Uh, even with the babies, you know. I like uh, when we do, when we go to meetings all together, um, I've been able to individually tell my story and make deeper connections with them. I have one that's looking to move out and is situated to get herself a house, uh, get back two of her kids that were taken through CPS, and she has a healthy baby right now with her. That's amazing. That is. That's a true blessing. Um, You know, I I actually, like, now that I've taken over this job, because I was at the women's house, and you know that, Mm -hmm. I I feel like there's a, a, a deeper opportunity there because these women are younger. And they also, you know, are basically the head of their households. And I can tell the story of how I grew up. Uh, My mom 
she was trying to make it as a rock and roll singer in the 80s. So I moved around a lot. I was surrounded by a lot of things maybe I shouldn't have been surrounded with. I've seen uh, the horrors of addiction from a very young age. And uh, I uh, was one of the kids on the floor of the meetings who would play with toys while listening to the 12 steps. And uh, I was grateful that I knew what to do when I wanted help. So really, in reality, it's it sounds like you're growing up was very similar to a lot of these, you know, children that are in the mom's house. Yes, yes. And so, you know, when they have struggles and they have difficulty, I can tell them about what I actually went through. And, you know, I was telling you this earlier, is that when I first approached recovery, I didn't didn't do my fourth step. I did my mother's, like, twice in a, maybe even more than that. I had my sponsor pointed out to me, and once that was pointed out to me, I was able to really see my my part in things. Mm-hmm. I had my fingers pointed out, like we all often do in early recovery. And it wasn't until I was able to see my part in things, start to grow as a person, start to do everything I could, to even to the point of asking people I admired, how did you get this, how did you do that? Even having people show me, like, you know, because first, at first it's intimidating, and you don't know what to ask, you don't know what to say, you feel intimidated going into the meetings, you know you need help, but you don't know what you're doing, you don't know how. I relapsed several times in early recovery, and coming back to those meetings was, it, it felt akin to pulling teeth, I guess is the only uh, analogy that comes to mind, but the more I did it and the quicker I came back, the better my recovery became. I got to a point where I understood that I was going to fail once in a while because I was trying to understand these new principles and apply them in my life. And I, at first, I didn't apply them perfectly. But after practice and after seeing what worked and what didn't, I found how those principles applied in my life. I couldn't do it like somebody else. You know, I could watch how they did it. I could I could ask for help, but at the end of it, those principles applied specifically for me. And and I had to interpret it for myself. Yeah. You you had mentioned that uh, the fourth step was the one where you were doing it for your mother and not for you. Just maybe for the listeners that aren't familiar with what the steps are in the 12 step program, what is the fourth one and the if fourth, you could elaborate. The fourth step, and I'm probably not going to say this word for word, is all about taking that self-inventory. Okay. It's like you you write down your character defects. You kind of do like a, like a timeline of uh, there's three things that are really specific. It would be where you've been. Oh. I wish I had uh, wrote this down, but it, it, it kind of comes down to where you've been, how you got to the program, and how your life is now after okay. after you've changed some things. Because we're always a work in progress. We're always going to have things we need to work on, but the important part is to start the work. 
And I was really nervous. Like the fourth and fifth step, almost everyone I know in recovery, like that's, those are the big ones. Those are the ones where you look at the scary stuff and, and you, you really come to terms with, you know, well, I was wrong about that and I did that and, and people reacted to it and it might have been more my fault than theirs. Yeah, it because sounds like a really self-reflecting step. Like it, it really is. And if you're not doing it in, the, in, in a way where you're looking at your own behavior, you're not doing it correctly. And the next step, the fifth step, is even scarier because then you find somebody you trust and you share it. Yeah. And I, I really felt like what that process did for me was lift a weight off my shoulders. Somebody else knew how dark it got for me. And, and they knew about the fact that, you know, I, I, when I first got to recovery, I, I wasn't blaming myself. I was blaming everybody else, especially my mother, you know. And now that I'm in recovery for as long as I have been, I have understood that I had no control over the cards I was dealt. The only thing I had control over is how I played them. Yeah. That's a and really good way same, to say that. Mm-hmm. It was the same for my mother. She went through her traumas and decided to play these cards this way. Same for her mother and so on and so on and so on. And it even becomes like until somebody deals with all this family stuff when you're in a dysfunctional family, you just pass that trauma on. Yeah. And Good for you, though, for wanting to break that cycle. Um, it was funny because I got diagnosed. I'm, I'm dual. You know, I'm not just uh, SUD. I'm also MI. So I got diagnosed with bipolar when I was 17 years old. And I run to my family and I'm like, guess what? I'm not an (laughs) a-hole. I have this diagnosis. There's something I can do. Well, they took that as I was basically talking smack about the family. You know, they didn't take that as, oh, we can help. And like any, you know. They, they just took it the, the completely wrong way, and I was really on my own, and thank God for peer support. Because I, I wouldn't have had any support any other way. Mm-hmm. Um, thank God for the fellowship. I wouldn't have had anybody in the beginning to take me to meetings, to reach out to me, even to ask me. Like, I've had, I had people calling me just to ask me how I was doing. And, you know, believe it or not, people being interested in that when – because when I was out using, nobody wanted to talk to me unless I had some drugs to give them or some alcohol to give them, was just like, wow. It, it in a lot of ways, was exactly what I needed at that time because I felt so lonely, so destroyed. Uh, I don't know where I'd be right now if it wasn't for peer support. Yeah. And that's why now I am one, because I feel like I need my story needs to be shared, I need to be the one reaching out now that I've gotten a little bit healthier. And it reminds me, every time you see a new person come into recovery, it reminds you why you're here. Keep what you have by giving it away. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. So when you were 17 and had that diagnosis to kind of like digest on your own, um, you had mentioned peer support. Did you have a support system at 17 outside of your family, or were you still kind of on your own with that diagnosis? I was on my own, but I decided, like, I went to a transitional living program because I was a street kid. I got, um, I was in the youth home, like, 26 times from the time to 13 to 17. 
And when I turned 17, the judge emancipated me against my, it, it wasn't even, I didn't even ask for it. And he told me in court, he said, if you mess up one more time, I'm putting you in big girl jail. You're going to graduate. And I stayed out of trouble after that. I went to the transitional living program. It was funded through United Way. Mm-hmm. But I ended up going through a trauma while I was there because I, I kind of, I've been learning a lot about this lately, trauma bonding. <laughs> yes. I trauma bonded with a girl there. And she d- got off her medicine. She wasn't taking her medicine. Nobody knew it. And she ended up committing suicide by laying down in front of a train after talking to me for three days and told me she was better and told me she was going to work. Wow. And that sent me into a spiral because I had put all my eggs in one basket. You are my support now. And and anything, we did everything together. So when I lost that support because I, I put, like I said, I put all my faith in in just this one person, mm-hmm. and I did that a lot throughout the throughout say fifteen years or so. So when that support was gone, my recovery was gone. And at that time, I was only talking about MI recovery. I wasn't. I I didn't have a problem with anything else. Right. My mother was my problem at that point. And I mean, it really spiraled me bad because I went on. With another, like, I I immediately became, like, super close friends with another woman there. She moved out to the West Coast, and I followed her after about six months. I had no family out there. I had no business going out there. And, again, put all my faith in one person. Ended up being homeless again. I almost died several times, and I tried to commit suicide several times. And I, I know what I, the story I'm about to tell isn't very, isn't traditional how you get help for this, but I literally had a friend of mine. She caught me trying to kill myself. This was like, say, the fourth time I tried. She picked me up by my neck and put me against the wall, and I fought her. I fought for my life. And she's like, why are you fighting? I thought you wanted to die. I was helping you. I'm your friend. I never tried again because it really made me go, oh, my gosh, is not what I want exactly and that's when that but after that the drugs started and I got really far off I ended up in the in, in a mental uh on a mental in the mental institution and I was so far out there because I think in a it stopped me from physically chasing death like with my own hands but that want was still there because I hadn't done any work. And I, I, I was miserable. Well, the doctor comes in there and he's like, I don't know what's going on with you, but if you don't knock this behavior off, we're, we're going to start. It, it's that electroshock therapy with you, and it scared me to death. I bet. And it was like the next day I was normal. I was just fine. You know, I remembered numbers of, of people that I knew, and and, you know, it was like, I started this pattern of moving every time I was uncomfortable. So I didn't actually face the real issues. And I did that, oh, man, I would say about 18 years until I really faced the fact that I need two pathways to recover intertwined. And if I leave off on either one, I'm leaving myself open to that part of myself that wants to destroy myself. 
And I, any, I think anybody in recovery will tell you that you kind of always live with this little part of you. And as longer I've been in recovery, it shrinks. But it's still going to speak up every once in a while when, you know, you get hungry, lonely, tired. You know, because that voice, like, I don't know when it started, but it just wants to check out. It doesn't want me to have anything. It doesn't want me um, happy. It doesn't want me satisfied. It doesn't want me um, anywhere with anyone that makes me feel better about myself. And I don't know when it started or where it came from. It might be genetic. They say that it is sometimes. But it's definitely there for me. And I have to check it all the time. Sometimes I even scream in my head, shut up. <laughs> I'm not listening to you today. <laughs> and don't take that lightly because reframing those powerful, you know, sometimes toxic negative thoughts, self-talk, being able to reframe that and pull yourself together, that's, that's the work right there. I, I, I think you're absolutely right, Ash. I really do. Um, because it was when I started, it, I can't remember what her name is, but she, uh, she's the I am enough lady. And she's kind of like a therapist to the stars. And she even talks about the fact that she's met people who have everything and they're miserable. Mm -hmm. And that it was like, um, how does she say it? She's like, they have everything and they still think it's not enough. It's not enough. Which kind of brings me to some of the ideas that, you know, I've explored many avenues and one of them being different spiritual paths. And Buddhism talks about um, the ideas of materialism and anything material fades mm -hmm. and grasping to things that fade will always make you miserable. And I, I, I internalize that with my, with my whole heart. And I tend to now um, guard my state of mind. When I get around somebody, I can tell that, you know, they're, they're pointing that finger out and they have that, that you know, kind of dark ideas on things. I want to help them, but I'm not going to spend my recovery time with them. I'll invite them to a meeting, but I need healthy people in my life. I need people in my life that I admire, that I see them achieving things that I want, ask them how they did it, tell them that I think you're doing great and stuff, you know, because I, at this point, am surrounded by people in recovery. And I think it's a beautiful thing how we support each other. Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, just going to take a moment here to just note, like we went from, I went <clears throat> from trauma bonding to just one person and pouring everything into them to, I need people in my life, multiple people and, you know, talking about the qualities of those people. So awesome. Yeah. You know, Thank I you. have a very quick, funny story when you were talking about, you know, going into your fourth step and, you know, going back in those rooms and how hard it was. It's funny to me because in my early recovery, my grandma had told me she would only do one thing for me because my family was just, you know, so done. 
She said, I will take you to a meeting. And she took me to a meeting and then wouldn't take me home. Like she literally dropped me off at a meeting and made me open up to people and find a way home. And that was probably the best thing she could have ever done for me. Thank you, Grandma. Yes, thank you, Grandma. <laughs> and and she knows still to this day how grateful I am for that. But I, you know, I noticed so quickly that, you know, people in those rooms could love me without even knowing me more than most people did in my entire life. When I, s- I, I can't say how much I love the people who are, mm-hmm. who are genuine, genuinely uh, grabbing their recovery. And it's a beautiful thing to watch. You watch people go from completely defeated. They don't know. They don't know their ass from a hole in the ground, honestly. And they come in there, and every day you watch it get a little bit better for them, a little bit better for them. They get their job back. They get their kids back. Oh, that's like that one just literally gives me chills when I see families reunited. Like, because mine never was. I lost my brother to this disease. Um, I lost my father. Uh, My mother is uh, literally dying from liver cirrhosis as we speak, even though she has recovery. Um, One of the biggest things that I think is important is making connections to other people in recovery because without it, you have nothing to check that endless tirade in your head. Another one of the things that really worked for me, I would say, is, you know, when you have the cravings come, especially in early recovery, if I had one of those, I would not move. I would sit there until it went away and I and tell myself, the longest this is going to last is 20 minutes, and if I have to sit here all day, I will not use I'll use tomorrow. I use that one too. Mm-hmm. You know, just put it off in the future somewhere because I could pro- procrastinate for everything else. Let's <coughs> procrastinate for this. You I, know? Did, I did the same thing actually in early recovery. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. If it's still here, I'll do it tomorrow. And thankfully, tomorrow never came. Right, right. Uh, seeing the people, like going to meetings every day was that was it really important for me because I needed to see the, the defeat of the relapse. I needed to see the new people in recovery and the reminder of how defeated I was when I came. Because I almost died twice. I had uh, I had my kidneys fail, not this last time, but the time before that. And I had my face reconstructed because I was with somebody who was completely inappropriate for me and decided when we were using together to beat me in the corner like a dog put me in the hospital. So I would probably say that I picked up all my mother's dysfunctional behavior, but there was a blessing in there, I would say, is the fact that she took me to those meetings. And I used those 12 steps, even young, before I got sober, as a way to live. And when I decided to become sober, I knew exactly where to go. I honestly, I'm one of those people, it's just my opinion, but I think the 12 steps could be used in multiple areas of life, not just substance use. I mean, we we should take an inventory sometimes about how we treat people and how we can be better. 
I think a lot of us use when we're out there, we use because we have a sickness of conscience. Conscience? Yeah, you're right. Sickness <laughs> of conscience. And we've, you know, like you, you, you start messing around and it's all fun and games in the beginning. But then you find out when you try to make some changes that you can't put it down. You've already changed your brain chemistry enough to where, like, you just, you stop having a choice. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people don't understand that. You stop having a choice. Yes, you made that first initial choice to pick up. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, and it's usually why you're just having the greatest time and, and your friends are partying with you and you're going here, you're going there, and then you try to stop. I couldn't. I couldn't do it on my own. And at a certain point, I didn't want to do it any at at certain points because my life was so messed up, and I had done so many messed up things that I am not proud of to continue that lifestyle because I felt I had no choice. Because the alternative for me felt like at that point, just being in pain all the time, being miserable all the time needing something all the time, wanting, you know, that that, that never-ending wanting monster was right here in my chest all the time, gnawing at it, going, oh, you got to use, you got to use, you got to use. Just this last year, I've literally been in tears a few times because I felt that obsession lift, finally. Like, like it's gone. And... I, I was at a meeting when it was like two weeks ago, and they, they did this. It was a reading out of uh, one of the NA books, and it talks about when the obsession lifts. I start bawling like a baby because I never thought that would happen for me. You know, I, really, I, I, I think the longest recovery I got before I came to Finley was eight and a half months. And I got to a point... <laughs> And my boss says this too. She's like, talk to 99% of women in jail and their story will start with, oh, I got in this relationship or I was with this guy or <laughs> my husband or, you know. So I also like told myself, I'm not getting in a relationship until I feel like I could actually be with somebody who isn't in recovery. Not that... That's not really the defining factor mm -hmm. of moving forward in my life in any way. But if I don't feel good enough to be with somebody who's a good person, then I have no business being in a relationship. If I'm looking for somebody who's less than me because I want them to stay with me, then that's a problem. Yeah. And so I always got into a relationship between like four months and eight months. And as soon as they did something wrong, Oh well, I got uh, I I deserve a drink. I deserve some cocaine. I deserve, you know, whatever I can get my hands on because I'm in pain. Mm -hmm. And that that I that type of talking in my head I've killed. I I just I don't even entertain it anymore. That's one of the things that I've even noticed, you know, working in the recovery field. I can go cuz we all do have that little voice that you talked about. But I can go for extended periods of time, and even though we're working in the recovery field, the actual addiction itself doesn't even cross my mind. Like, like it doesn't. Like, I think about recovery, but I don't even think about the things. 
because it because I'm not uh, you know that obsession like you said is lifted to where and then it'll pop in my head one day and I'll be like wow I haven't even thought about that in so long and you get that sense of gratitude that you're like wow I really don't have to obsess over this thing that I thought was going to control me forever right and it is an amazing feeling, but it doesn't come lightly. It may take you a longer time than me to get there, but it will. I really feel it will come. If you're doing the work and you're using those tw- 12 steps with a sponsor, if you're going to your appointments and you're following what your doctor says, you're doing your counseling, you know, it's not a – even for one person, it's not one path. Right. And I know, you know, at Focus, we believe in many pathways to recovery. But in my heart of hearts, I don't believe we walk one path. And if you're not addressing, and, and this again is my opinion, if you're not addressing all those things, it's a lot easier to fail. Right. I absolutely love that you said that because I feel like I'm at a transition in my recovery where I'm starting to embody not only, you know, my spiritual path. But now, or my physical health, but now I'm like, okay, now we're doing the mind. We're doing mind, body, and soul work, all three. And I I, I do feel like each one of those are kind of weaved in a different pathway to create my own, you know? It's very personal. And and, and beautiful. It, It is a beautiful journey if you embrace it with all your heart. Don't put your toe in. Jump in there. You know, because there's a lot of us that will support you, will be there for you. You know, you, I was so devastated in early recovery. And I'm glad you talked about, you, you mentioned, like, the spiritual part. I think a lot of people who uh, need recovery, like, stay out because they read some of the stuff in the AA and A, and they think it's, oh, God, 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 God. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And yes, that, you know, that works for a lot of people. It worked for my mom, you know, and I'll go to church, you know, but I also researched other avenues. I, you know, I've been to different types of churches. I've, it's not a one size fits all. And I don't necessarily believe this, but I've heard it said, and it's worked for some people. If your higher power needs to be a group of drunks who are trying to stay sober, then let your higher power be that. I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because like you said before, it's personal. So whatever it needs to be, it can be whatever. I also believe, though, that, you know, the way people talk about like our meeting, like AA and NA meetings where, oh, they just get together, they talk for a minute, and then they run out and go use together, stuff like that. I, You know, well, not everyone, you know, I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing to remember, too, for, you know, some of the people listening is even the people that are coming to the meetings that are still drinking or still using, they came to the meeting. Right. They're they're trying. Like. Nobody can be, you know, no one's perfect and no one's successful, you know, 100%, you know, the very first try. It's like the fact that they took the initiative. And honestly, I feel like maybe it was even harder for them, you know, because they still came in that door and they're still searching for it. And hopefully they get there. Yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, it's meetings are not my pathway, but you know, I think it's pretty amazing. I know I'm maybe I'm making an assumption here. I don't think so. I think I'm in the, in the recovery community enough, but like, you know, just as we're talking about all the different spectrums of pathways and stuff, but like even in that meeting alone, all the different pathways, all the different people, does someone got day one? Is someone on drugs right now? Does someone got 40 years? It's, it's, they all got there a different way. Yeah. Right. Well, meditation has been priceless to me. Um, which actually like the ideas of it just started with that, that silence we do. Cause it's calming the, the silence, you know, the moment of silence we do for the, for the still sick and suffering. Like I was doing that at 12 years old. <laughs> so I, with that being so calming, taking a deep breath and then, okay, let's do it. It, it made me want to learn more about meditation. It made me want to learn more about mindfulness. Mindfulness has been invaluable to me, you know, getting myself back into my body instead of being in all this automatic behavior, which leads always leads me down the wrong path. And, you know, even if you relapse, use it as a, uh, as a learning tool. That's what I did. It made it, 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 I systematically, like I had reservations. I think one of them was if I could just keep $80 in my pocket, I'd be fine. Well, even when I had several thousand dollars in my pocket, I was broken three days, you know, in the depth of my addiction. So, you know, one by one by one, they fell. And other people seen me relapsing, but I, it finally stuck. You know, I had to see if I, I had to, we all want an easier, softer way. And if this was easier and softer, we probably wouldn't be sitting here talking about it right now. We would all be in recovery if it was easy. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Oh, that's funny. Because I was talking to the moms yesterday. It was like, if a relationship could fix us, we'd all be there now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know recovery's also given me my sense of self back and my autonomy. Because I don't feel like I need somebody to cover up or to pick me up, or to pull me up, or anything like that. I finally got a sense of, I can do this myself if I have to. And that is a great feeling. To, to I didn't even understand that. I was so angry at myself for letting myself down. And I've just started to do work on that, of the work of forgiving myself. Like, my future self was mad at my past self for like, man, you really let us down. <laughs> And I think in some ways it got, it, that had me stuck too because I didn't feel like I deserved anything. You know, I, I messed up so bad. You don't deserve nothing. You deserve to lay in the street and pull your hair out and rub mud in your face. And today I can say I don't feel that way. And I work with some pretty awesome ladies who, like, at any moment I know I could come to either one of you and talk to you, you know. It's kind of funny because I was just sitting here thinking the world works in, you know, weird ways because if you think back, you know, you're like years and years ago, we had no idea that, you know, on December 16th of 2023, we'd be sitting here and we would feel this way. Right. You know, and it's like, but we had to go into it blindfully, just trusting that things would get better and they'd have and they continue to. Well, I'm just going to let the podcast know that, you know, you were my first peer support (laughs) and... 
like sitting across from you now and we work together now, like if they, if, if it wouldn't have been for you, like I know that I would have fell off and I am, you know, we went through some pretty heavy stuff with me and I'm glad that, um, I'm glad that I work with you now. I, I consider you a friend and the, what do they say about uh, an addict in gratitude? They don't relapse. Helping you helped me, so I hope that you know that. And I can see the difference just from the last few years of knowing you because I've watched you learn to love yourself. <laughs> All yeah. right, now I'm trying to make you cry. I know, you're <laughs> going to make me cry. <laughs> it was bound to happen once. Yeah. I'm sitting here holding it. You know, my sister, like, I had called her the other day. We usually uh, video phone on uh, Messenger. And I was talking about something that upset me, and she's like, you know what? You just need to drop that because you glow now. (laughs) (laughs) And it just made me laugh so hard that my sister sees that because there was a point with my sister that she wouldn't even let me in the same room as her kids. And this last summer, I was able to take my niece all like for a whole week. And part of that was showing her what can happen if you if you don't strive to be better. Um, I, but another part of that was me and her reconnecting. And she's been calling me on the phone now, and she texts me now, and she wasn't doing that at all before that. And I'm I'm just so like. She plays the the viola, and she just uh, she's in uh, volleyball, and she's trying out for cheerleading. And I'm hoping because I didn't hear about all these things she was doing before. I'm hoping that maybe I like what I did with her was part of that, yeah. letting her see what happens yeah. when you you allow your when you don't when you don't strive for anything when you don't have your joy in your life, which for me is art, and you know what I do as a peer support. You, it, all of us need something that sets our soul on fire. And I talk to the women about that too. And I ask them, like, what sets your soul on fire? What do you care about? Well, you better get involved because, you know, day in and day out of not caring about nothing is a miserable existence. Yeah. yeah. Find what you're passionate about. Yeah. Well, I, I think I'm really trying to think about what I'm saying. And I hope it reaches somebody who feels alone. You know, because I felt alone in early recovery. I felt like everybody was judging me. Like, I was a POS. Like, um, I ran, I moved a lot. I, like, six months would go by, and I would get this fire in, in me that just was like, everybody's judging me. Oh, my God, I screwed this up. Once grew up, and I'm like, I'm off to another state. <laughs> and who would have thought that I would have settled in Ohio <laughs> you would think you would have picked somewhere with a beach. I but. know, right? I know, but I, I love Finley. I really do. Like, it, it is such a mix of, like, the downtown areas, like a place I had been that I really loved called Royal Oak, Michigan. And then you're instantly out in the country, and it's like, it, it, it's just a beautiful town. Well, I'm super glad that you're here, and I'm super glad that I met you and that we're friends. Thank you, Stacy. Same here. Absolutely. Um, I I love working for Focus. I love working with the people I work with. Um, they not only are my coworkers, but like I know, like I said, 
any single one of them would help me with something, help one of the women I work with. Um, it's really an amazing place program. Uh, I, I watched the loft get started, and I've watched you become amazing at your job when, like, we talked a few times, and you're just like, I don't, I don't know if this is the fit. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure in the beginning, but thank you. You do amazing, though. <laughs> like, just even that game we were just talking about, I never heard of that before. <laughs> you got to get creative with the youth. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of seeing that, too, because I'm working with younger women now, and addiction tends to, like, make us not grow up as fast. Mm-hmm. You know, even I have some immature ways, so... But we work on it, and I'm, you know, being fully present is really the only way we mature. Mm-hmm. So um, it, me and my mom kind of switched roles as I approached adolescence, and she got deeper in her addiction. So that might be another thing, too, is I grab on to, you know, a little bit of it, some of the younger ways of being because I didn't really have a childhood and my father wasn't really a part of my life either. And when I did get around him, it was just seeing his addiction. I just thought that's what adults did. I thought that was the way you handled emotions, uncomfortable stuff. Because, you know, even kid kids' parties was a reason to drink. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. You know, so, and, oh, there was always a cooler, a beer in the back seat. I, I was a bartender at six years old, you know. I kind of, like, do talk to the the women I work with now about boundaries with that. I think if you give kids too much too fast or let them know too much too fast about the adult world, it overwhelms them and causes emotional, like, I don't know what I'm what word I'm looking for in that. I What I picked up on the pattern of, like, where we were going with that was, like, here we're talking about the environment of focus and then the environment that you were raised in and, like, how powerful that can be. Yeah, yeah. And what was it I said? Because I was uh, – I did that interview with the Associated Press, and one of the things that I had said is, like, I've kind of observed that peer support is kind of, like, reverse uh, peer pressure. <laughs> That's a really good way to put that. that. <laughs> because we don't pressure yeah. people, but we live by example. We live out loud. We mm-hmm. tell our story. We tell people where we used to be, where most people would hide it. Mm-hmm. And I'm very proud of that. Um, yes, I know I overshare sometimes, but, you know, there's a reason for it. Because <laughs> it was other people's stories that, that made me know it was possible. It sparks the hope. And honestly, if you have hope, you got a whole lot more than some people I know. You know, bringing hope to the hopeless. Like, So kind of, I guess, the reflection I have, because I, I know we're getting close, is you don't need to, you know, I've gone into some meetings, and you got, like, some of the old timers in there, and they'll, like, being on the table and they have all these really smart things to say and they kind of gatekeep sometimes and and I I really encourage you not to be intimidated by that. I really encourage you to keep going to different meetings until you find your home. 
there's somebody out there that wants to help you. There's somebody out there that wants to talk to you, that wants to hear what you have to say. I think that's a really, really good statement. Just helps remind people that there is hope and they're, and they're not alone. I just know how intimidated I was when I first approached. You know, even though I knew what AA was and NA was, even though I knew, you know, what going to a doctor's office to inquire about, hey, maybe this is going on with me. Hey, maybe this is, this is, you know, will you check me out and help me? Like, that can be intimidating. Oh, yeah. For me, though, there was nothing but good on the other side of it. You know, even the hard parts taught me something. So, Well, you had to know there would be hard parts, too, because, you know, it's hard. Everything is. I could say some parts were hard, but the hard parts slid me into an easier rhythm with all the other parts because mm-hmm. you do have to face some facts you know you do have to come out your house you do have to show up you do have to make phone calls you do have to do you know like some homework you're you're you're, you're not going to get recovery sitting on your couch and you know for me like with I do suffer from anxiety especially social anxiety. It led me into using in social situations, you know, just to be able to be present in the room, which usually would end up with me saying or doing something weird that didn't made them not want me around or whatever. So action, you know, like error on the side of action. Well, I just really like how you, you know, keep interjecting hope in there, and I just... You know, I, it, what a beautiful feeling when mountains turn into hills, you know what I mean? And I think that's, that's recovering in a nutshell. Like nothing's going to be perfect and beautiful and easy, but, you know, anchoring that hope and realizing that all of those mountains that you did overcome will, will become hills. That's something my therapist said to me and uh, it really resonates. It's funny you said that because like I just shared something and yes, I'm old, I'm on Facebook, but um (laughs) It showed a picture of a guy standing on top of a mountain, and it said, yes, we should be proud of him. And then it shows a person reaching the the ledge in a hole, but we should also be proud of him. Oh, I saw that meme. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good stuff. And I loved it. I loved it. Because honestly, in my heart of hearts, I feel like we should be more proud of the person who dug themselves out of a hole because they had all that depression and pressure and, and angst and... Um, like not only the guy climbing the mountain already feels like a, like a good dude. The guy in that hole feels like garbage. He had the odds stacked against him. Right. So not only did he have to overcome, you know, getting out of that hole, he had to overcome himself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And his self-defeat. Hardest person to get over and to forgive is always ourselves. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that has been a process. It is something I do every day on a daily basis is is go, yeah, that was then, but this is now. And I forgive you. You're showing up now. Thank you. Well, I'm glad that you're showing up now. I'm glad <laughs> that I know you, and I'm glad that you came on this podcast. I, You know, honestly, I've wanted to do it for a little while, but I'm glad I waited because I am in the room with two people. You guys are probably some of my favorite people, and I felt very comfortable. So thank you, Stacy. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, Do you have anything else you want to put out there? Keep coming back. 
no matter how many times you fall, just keep coming back until you find somebody who who has something similar, something you look up to. Ask them how they did it. It's a very very good point. Follow through. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I know it's hard to come on here and be vulnerable and, you know, share those parts of ourselves that we don't always want to talk about, but doing that will help other people. And I hope that the listeners get something out of this. What was it you said right before we sat down? What? We keep what we have by giving it away. Yep. We keep what we have by giving it away. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. I am also very proud of you. (laughs) (laughs) Keep learning. Keep unlearning. Very proud of you. You've come a long way. Thank you. You have been listening to the I Am Somebody podcast. If you are in a mental health crisis, call the Suicide and Crisis Hotline at 988. You can also connect with a crisis counselor by texting HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741. In Hancock County, Ohio, you can call the crisis line at 888-936-7116. For Hancock County, Ohio residents, you can contact Focus Recovering Wellness Community at 419-423-5071. NAMI, Hancock County, can be reached at 567-525-3435. LGBTQ plus support can be found at LGBTQ plus Spectrum of Finley by emailing contact at spectrumoffinleylgbt.org. Outside of Hancock County, use the internet to find local recovery community organizations or your local NAMI chapter. LGBTQ plus youth can call the Trevor Hotline for support at 866-488-7386. If you are a victim of domestic violence, call 800-799-7233 or the Open Arms Hotline at 419 422 4766. If you are the victim of sexual assault, please call 800-656-4673. Marketing support was provided by Amber Keir of the Hysteria Company. I am your compare, Brooke Nissen. The song used is A Walk in the Light by Zach Fletcher and is used under permission of the copyright holder. This podcast was made possible by the support of Associated Charities, the Finley Hancock Community Foundation, the Hancock County Board of Alcohol, Drug Addiction, and Mental Health Services, and donors like you. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit our website at IamSomebodyPodcast.org. Thank you for listening. I am somebody.